no matter what happens, we never want to chase a single trait, right? And so can we come up with an index of some sort that would somehow incorporate these sustainability type traits with their appropriate economic values, which we don't know, but incorporate that appropriately so that we don't lose all the wonderful progress we've made over the years and all these other traits and, and sort of optimize that selection. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. The Beef Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to another episode of the Beef Podcast Show. My name is Dr. Stephanie Hansen. I'm a feedlot nutritionist at Iowa State University, and I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jenny Borman. She's originally from Muscatine, Iowa, and grew up with shorthorn cattle and horses, and is now a professor of animal science at Kansas State University. She's currently the Assistant Dean for Academic Programs for the College of Agriculture at K-State. She earned her BS degree at Iowa State University. MS at Oklahoma State University, and then returned to Iowa State, go Cyclones, for a PhD in animal breeding and genetics. When not at work, she enjoys showing horses and helping out with her kids 4-H. So Dr. Parman, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me. Awesome. So um, let's start with the obvious question, which is, um, how did you get to where you are today? What was the kind of career path that led you to have an interest in the beef industry and led to your position there at K-State. Yeah. So um, like a, a lot of young kids, I was uh, active in 4-H and FFA and really passionate about our, our small little beef cattle herd. We had shorthorns growing up. I actually lived in town um, and the cattle were at my grandparents and extended family. Um, but we had a really exceptional FFA program at our high school, and uh, I was able to be involved and learn about ag and learn about the beef industry, um, which just sort of naturally led to um, animal science at Iowa State as an Iowa kid, you know, going to do the youth livestock events on campus um, just was a really natural fit. Unlike a lot of the the Young animal science students, I knew I did not want to go to vet school, um, just didn't like the blood and the guts and the icky stuff, uh, but was fascinated with genetics. And the more I learned about genetics, um, just was absolutely you know, enthralled with that idea of, of selection and genetic improvement and how we can take our populations and make them better for whatever the traits are that we're interested in. And so luckily... You know, I didn't know it at the time, but Iowa State has a long history of, of strength in, in animal breeding and genetics. And so I was able to take some really good coursework as an undergrad and had some great mentors as an undergrad um, that encouraged me to think about graduate school. I did some undergrad research, not in genetics, but but just kind of got that that bug. And so um, my mentors were uh, encouraging and I ended up at Oklahoma State University to work on a master's degree. Worked in, uh, again, beef cattle genetics, did an interesting project actually looking at milk production of beef cows and how selection on milk PPD might impact other traits, um, such as longevity and fertility and growth and, and different things. And I've uh, had a great experience there and, and wanted to continue it and get a PhD in genetics. And so, um, you know, looked at some different schools. But again, you know, if you want to do genetics and breeding, you know, Iowa State's the place to be. And so I went back home to Iowa State and got to work um, in in that group there. Uh, that was about the time that we were developing ultrasound for the use of measuring body composition and developing ultrasound EPDs for the different breeds. And so got to be involved in those projects, as well as lots of others. And so really had a great experience there. Uh, getting my B, my PhD in breeding and genetics. Um, and from there, um, just serendipity as I was finishing up, the position here at K-State came open, a teaching and research position in animal breeding. And so I knew 
I do want to stay in the Midwest and stay in beach country. So it really was a perfect fit, um, you know, not too far from home and, and still right in the heart of, of the beef industry. So um, ended up moving down here to K-State and had a teaching and research position for about 18 years, uh, taught our genetics class, taught our animal breeding class, did research, taught some graduate classes. Um, and then just in the last six months, I moved into the dean's office. We're now um, I'm an assistant dean in the College of Ag, really working on supporting students and helping students and faculty with a wide variety of things um, in a supportive role, as well as continuing to uh, participate in our research program here in beef genetics. So that's my story. And you're sticking to it. I'm sticking to it. Nice. Uh, well, it's so interesting. So, you know, we're kind of from the two opposite sides of the state. I'm from over just south of Sioux City originally. Um, and it's but it's so many similarities. I was like frantically writing notes as you were talking about it because you were talking about having access to your grandparents place. And that's where the cattle were because you lived in town. And that was exactly the same for me. And that was, you know, that was everything that was so influential in my choice to get involved in the beef industry. Um, and I want to kind of circle back eventually to this idea of how do we give kids who didn't get raised on a farm this this bug, right, this this interest in the beef industry. But I, I first want to talk about um, you talked about 4-H and FFA in there. And I am a firm believer in that I learned some of my best BSing skills from writing goal sheets for 4-H projects, right? Like nobody, I had like 40 projects in the building, as, the, in, as we called it. And yeah, I'd be writing my four question goal sheet like the day before, right? And I was winning awards for those goal sheets. Like that's why I'm a good grant writer now, right? Like I've been selling myself since I was nine years old on those grant sheets. Like these are the best cookies you're ever going to taste, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, it was, um, you know, what really, the, what I remember is, and I can't even know what they're called anymore, maybe SAEs or whatever they were in FFA, where you had to write about your projects and, uh, you know, and then there was like the budget piece, right? As a 4-H kid, your grandpa gives you a heifer and they buy the feed and you do your thing and it's fun. But then you had to like start writing stuff down. And to me, that was really sort of, oh, you need the bead and just doesn't show up, you know, to be what <laughs> and right. And when you sell them, you have to like make money or maybe you're supposed to make money. So I remember that being as sort of eye opening that, you know, not, cattle business isn't supposed to be a hobby farm. They're not horses. Right. That's a whole nother story. Um, but sort of that piece of it, I remember being really eye opening and and yeah, the goals I were my kids are doing the 4-H thing and it's like, you know, record books are due September 15th and on September 14th, they're like, oh, what were our goals this year? We got to write something down and, and you know, yeah, learning to sort of BS and, and not just say it, but okay, elaborate, talk about that. What, what do you think you learned? And I think those are actually really good skills. And I think about now when I write letters of recommendations for students and things like that, you know, it's not just the facts, ma'am. It's the facts, but talk about it. Make it a little more, use better language, elaborate. And yeah, absolutely writing those sorts of things does those quarry tracker books and things. It does teach you to write well and think, think through those things. Uh, those, those was a good, it was a good background. I'm curious if you were involved like in things like extemporaneous speaking or any of that kind of communication side. Because that's the other one is that I've, you know, and I know that not everybody's like that, but I really like talking to, you know, groups of people and stuff like that. And I remember going to like state 4-H stuff, right, to be like you draw something out of a hat, you had 15 minutes to write something, you know, cohesive on it. And then you sit on a stage in the like sweltering hot building and <laughs> try to like persuade somebody why your point on the industry was right. Yeah, that's. That's a really good point. I remember as a freshman doing the FFA Creed. I don't know if they still do that at contests even or not. I remember doing that one. I did prepared speeches. I wasn't brave enough to do extemporaneous. And it, because yeah, the, the terror, right? Um, but then at the same time, it's like, you know what? I walk into a classroom of 120 students and talk about genetics. And I wouldn't be able to do that if it wasn't for things like some of those public speaking, you know, reasons you did the livestock judging as a kid and having to walk into that room with somebody who looks really scary. You know, the secret is they're not that scary, right? Those judges or reasons takers or whatever it is. And this is I'm telling I tell my 4-H kids this all the time. It's like, 
So you screw up. It's okay. You know, go in there and do your best. And someday when you have to walk into a classroom, maybe, or whatever it is, or go to that job interview, you're not going to be terrified because you've been there. You know, the the development that that you get as those kids, and yes, they complain, mom, I don't want to do that. Or why do I have to? Because it's good for you. Because someday when you walk into that job interview or that lecture hall or whatever it is, wherever you're going, maybe your company and you've got to present to the board of directors or whatever, you're not going to be terrified much. And you're going to have such a better place to start from because you had to go there. Um, There's no way I would ever be able to be a professor, walk into a room and and teach a bunch of 18-year-olds about stuff if I hadn't had those experiences coming up. There's no way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. So, I mean, a couple of things I heard was we give those kids an opportunity to fail safely, right? They get to practice every day in a super low stakes environment, and then it builds those stakes as they build their confidence until one day it's the big stake of the big job interview or something, right? And they're ready to nail it. You know, you can tell the way they stand, the way that they project their voice, you know, and I love your comment about judging teams, right? So I think that's one of the big benefits of our, you know, students who are involved in, you know, dairy judging or meats judging or life sake bell in college. Um, it's a lot of time. They're on the road a lot. Sometimes they have to really work extra hard to keep up with their classroom and be successful there. But the, I don't know, interpersonal skills, communication skills, however you want to capture it, the soft skills that are hard, they're very good at those. Right. Yeah. And I've told students too, it's like, honestly, nobody cares that you know how to judge a pig. I mean, that that's for the most part, really irrelevant, right? Because that's not the real livestock world. But the other stuff you're getting, and again, whether it's judging teams or other extracurricular activities, it's the the soft skills, right? The communication, the confidence is a big one. To be able to walk into a room and have some confidence, no matter what the topic is. Um, and also the other thing I think that the 4-H kids, FFA kids, judging kids, whatever it is, um, and, and it's not just those things, you know, sports, whatever, but the, the fact that you put in extra effort for no extrinsic reward, right? Nobody's giving you money to do all that extra work. It's it's about developing yourself and and that employers and scholarship, whatever it is down the road, they know that, right? You did these things that you didn't have to, and it was a lot of work, and sometimes it was blood, sweat, and tears. But that reflects on what you are the skills you've had, you're willing to do that. You go above and beyond for that goal. And I I think those things are really important that, yeah, nobody's going to give you extra money or whatever because you did your record book. Now, there may be a scholarship down the road or things like that, but you learn something, you went above and beyond, and that's going to show down the road. And I think that piece of it, communication is the confidence, the going above and beyond. It makes such a huge difference for our kids. Yeah, I think the question is, how do we get, I mean, I think we both had the experience of 4-H. I did not have FFA at my high school, so I wasn't in FFA. But I see my advisees and things like that. Now at the university, you came through those programs and can clearly see the benefit, um, especially if they were state level officers and things like that. Um, How do we get the students who don't have the benefit of growing up on a farm or in a small rural Midwestern town? You know, we have students from Puerto Rico, students from Texas, students from California, all over the country, right, that may have come from suburbia or may have come from a farm there or whatever, but they they didn't have enough farm density around there that maybe they had some of these programs. Do you have any thoughts on how we encourage those students to get active in 4-H type programs? Or do we have to find new ways to reach out to that student to, to get them to college? Yeah, that's a good question. I think maybe a couple answers. And and 4-H has done a good job, I think, of and, and the FFA programs and some of the more urban-y sorts of towns, I guess, have done a good job of having other things besides li- besides livestock. So one project we do is dog. We do dog project, which is all city kids, right? I mean, that's something that is not sort of traditional livestock, but it brings a new group and you still have sort of the same thing. You've got goals and you've got your project books and, um, you know, you don't have feed to gate ratio and, and all these things that we worry about, but... <laughs> You still have sort of that structure. And, um, you know, we've got active horticulture, right? Anybody can have a garden and that's a little window into ag. So I think those things are important. But 
It's also interesting, um, and I know Iowa State and K-State are similar in this way, is that I'm going to throw out 50-50. It's not quite that. I think it's actually maybe 60-40, but the number of sort of urban kids that come into our animal science program wanting to be dog and cat vets and maybe and some horse and some wildlife and but but not production ag. I mean, that's a huge amount of students. And we know that they're not going to all get into vet school. Some of them do, but we know they're not. But that was sort of the neatest thing about one of the neatest things about my job is when you bring those kids in and the first time they see a pig or a dairy cow or whatever, and they're like, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. And they're interested in science. They're interested in animals. And you can talk about, hey, there's this research project that we're doing with these goats and we're looking at, I don't know, pain receptors and whatever it is, you know, or look at all these different kinds of byproducts or, you know, ethanol byproduct, whatever. We're feeding these goats and look at how the difference in whatever. Doesn't matter what it is, but when they see that and they have kind of that aha moment that, oh my gosh, look at all this cool stuff that you could do with animals. It's not dogs and cats necessarily. Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but there's this whole other world. And then getting them to understand that, yeah, I can do all kinds of cool things working with animals, working in the animal industry, besides being a vet. And even though I'm from, for us, it's all, you know, urban Kansas City or Wichita or whatever, or Chicago or Dallas. But look at what I can learn and look at what I can do. And I think having that opportunity, and we're going to need that, right? We need people to work in agriculture. We need young people in agriculture. And there's not enough of them that are sort of our traditional came from a big ranch or a big farm and you know we don't have enough people and so we've got to attract those students whether it's through sort of the urban 4-h and ffa programs in high school or bringing them to campus because they want to be a dog vet but hey look what we can do so i that's been such an exciting part of my time here is helping those students and they, they start oh i don't belong here i don't have an ag background yeah you do you belong here and you can learn the things that you need to learn to take part in this industry at whatever part you want, whether it's nutrition or whether it's business or whatever. You know, there's so many opportunities and getting those young people excited about something they never even knew existed. That That's such a fun part, rewarding part of the job. I think there's, a, there's so many things there. I was writing some notes down. Um, I think this is one of the things that K-State and Iowa State have in common. There's certainly other institutions as well that are good at this, but it's very expensive for our departments to keep the breadth of species uh, uh, farms that we have so that those students can see how pigs are raised, how poultry are raised, see the you know modern biosecurity uh, measures, the safe way to handle cattle, whatever. And that's one of the things that K-State's particularly good is like for the beef side, having you know, a stalker unit, a teacher unit, you know, a, a feedlot, right? So you can see all these different segments. Um but those are expensive, and sometimes it's hard to help the legislature or other places. Even hell, it's hard to make the college understand sometimes why it is so important as either a recruiting tool to get those kids into our department, um, or you know, to to maintain the quality of faculty that we have, the research potential. Um, so I think that that is such an important thing for people to keep in mind how important it is to have those species. Well, and we try at least on campus, uh, we've had some success in saying trying to get to folks and say, this, so you're a chemistry professor. This is our lab. You know, you've got right. a basement with the laptops, right? Think of how you would teach chemistry if you didn't have your labs. And that's the same thing as us. Those are our labs. And we have to. Now, unfortunately, our labs take a lot of space and a lot of dollars. Um, okay. and, and here at K-State, for example, and it's similar at Iowa State, all of our farms are like spitting distance from the football stadium. You know, this is not cheap land that we've got cows and pigs and, and horses on. But because it's spinning distance from the football stadium, we can get students back and forth for labs and classes and things. And and we have to have that. We can't teach animal science or agronomy or whatever. We can't teach that without our labs. And and so far, that, that argument resonates. Um, campus understands it. I think our legislators understand it so far. But it's something we can't ever stop pushing that message because like I said, those could go away. We just need to keep pushing the message that we have to have it to, to put people out into the industry, right? We've got to have our graduates go out there and, and be successful. They have to have that. 
Yeah, I think that's so true. Um, because circling back to kind of where you started this, that student who comes in who did not get raised on a bee farm or a ranch or something like that, they thought they wanted to be a dog or cat vet, or they didn't really know. They just know that they like animals. And once we get them into Laura Griner's Swine 225 class, right, they have potential to be a pig kid after that, right? Or they get into Brad Scar's beef class or, you know, different folks at K-State and stuff, right? Like at the end of these places. And that kind of makes me come back to something where you started, which was, you know, you're talking about your genetics class as an undergrad and how you got that interest. So I was curious who taught that. So um, the the actual genetics was taught over in Carver Hall in the biology, actually in the genetics department. It was, um, I remember his name, Jack Gurton. He did a lot of fruit flies. And so he was sort of hardcore genetics, not animal genetics. But then I took our, the animal breeding course with, um, Paul Brocklesburg, I think. Okay. If I remember correctly, I'm really dating myself here. Uh, <laughs> but that, yeah, I was just absolutely fascinated that we had an advanced animal breeding course. March Faust taught that at the time. And um, just, I, I mean, I just loved it. And that's where I, I wanted to go. And I, I mean, I didn't know enough to know that I didn't know enough, but I knew that I really was excited about it. And, um, and it just, so, I mean, nutrition's fine. I don't mind nutrition. Right. The stuff was fine, but I just, the genetics and the selection and the breeding systems just really just grabbed me from day one. Okay. So, so let's dig into that. Um, you spoke at BIF last year, right? On the topic of crossbreeding. Um, and, uh, I think this is maybe one of those sometimes forgotten tools that we have in our toolbox. And I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. I, um, run a few Angus cows out here. And, uh, you know, several years ago, I was like, oh, I'm going to use some Simital semen this year. And I was watching one of my cows calve on the cam because I was at work and she happened to calve in like the perfect spot where I was checking on her at lunch. I was like, oh, good. She's calving. And it was like 12 minutes from the time that that calf hit the ground till it was up in nursing. And it was just, you know, pounding on mom's udder to get milk to let down. I was just like, I'm doing this always. This is the only thing I'm doing. <laughs> So um, I don't know where you want to start with that. Um, maybe a little bit, of, you know, have a reminder of the value of crossbreeding. And then, you know, maybe what do you think producers need to know about that today? Yeah, it's interesting when you, you talked about we've talked about other species and swine and different things. And and honestly, other than dairy, which is its own sort of thing, but all of our other species, particularly swine and poultry, have done a great job of taking advantage of heterosis and crossbreeding since I don't know, the 30s or 40s. I mean, forever, right? That's just what they do. Um, beef industry has been not as, I guess, uh, comfortable adopting crossbreeding and for a lot of the reasons that you've talked about. But, um, you know, crossbreeding is a challenge when you have to keep your own replacement heifers, right? If you, So like in pigs, for example... If you are buying in your gilts, crossbreeding is fall down simple. But when you think about a beef program where the males and female calves born on your farm, some of them have to go on and be replacements and some of them are your feedlot animals. We have we make the same selection decision. We buy the same sires, for example, and we expect their daughters to make cows and their sons to be good feedlot animals. And if you think about that, that's actually a pretty tall order, right? Um, the analogy I use in class is that, you know, some of us are good at math and some of us are good at playing the violin and some of us are good at basketball. Nobody's good at everything. Yet we're expecting these sires to come in and put cows on the ground that make great females and make great feeder cattle all at the same time. And that, that just is difficult. And so when we're dealing with crossbreeding, we're sort of, at least in a lot of cases with the smaller Midwest-type herds, it's difficult because we're trying to create females at the same time, right? The crossbreeding systems work great if I don't have to worry about females, if I can just get females. But that's not our structure, right? And, and there's been a few places where there's some producers that have kind of tried to do that niche and say, hey, I'm creating great F1 females. And I'm going to sell them as heifers. Some people have tried to go that direction. But by and large, most beef producers want to raise their own females. Now, 
to the talk to the ag economists if you like pencil that out buying those females actually probably is not more expensive if you really account the value of the calf that you kept and raising her up and getting your bread um but people like to keep their own heifers that's just sort of the, the structure we have okay let me ask you a question about replacement heifers so we talked with cliff lamb last week about um, all kinds of applied reproductive technologies. And sex semen was one of the kind of things that we talked about. Do you think sex semen changes the game for something like this? I could use sexed female semen on my cows of best genetic merit that I want to keep my Angus purebred heifers to be my replacement heifers. But for my terminal interests, anybody else is sort of the middle of the road genetics. You know, they can they can be out with the scimitol bull or whatever. Absolutely. That sex semen is a game changer. Until you remember, and you probably know better than I, what's percentage of beef producers use AI? Is 10, 15? Yeah, I think it's so variable depending on the part of the country that you're in, right? Like like Iowa is such a seed stock producing state, right? We have a lot of bulls here. And yet, you know, and out West, AI would be a much lower percentage, right? Because of the extensive systems. They're lucky that they have a bull who stays with the cows, let alone right. <laughs> bringing right. them in and trying to repair pairs afterwards is a nightmare. So, yeah, yeah, so it's think, a good you know, point. The sex semen part would make makes a crossbreeding system much more doable where you can, if you even think about the numbers, and Cliff would know this way better than I would, but if you synchronize all your cows and do one shot of AI with sex semen, let's just say you had 100 cows, you'd probably get, you could get 50, 60% conception rate on that, you would hope, in a decent year. And so again, all cows, just do everybody, one shot of sex semen. You would probably generate enough replacement heifers and probably it would have extra probably in most years that would give you enough heifers for replacement and then just turn out your terminal trait bull. And the only heifers you keep, doesn't matter what cow she's out of, but you're going to keep heifers from that one shot of sex semen with a very highly maternal focused bull. And then you don't have to worry about two different, you know, having two different live bulls or anything. You just take that one shot get your heifers out of that group, everybody else is a is a feedlot animal. So if you could the other that works. Yeah. And the other value for that obviously is you get most likely the most fertile females who are the ones who are going to be successful for that, right? So then the, your your replacement heifers have that good fertility gene. We we know that like if I have a cow who calves in the first part of the calving season, her daughters are likely to be like that. Um, so, you know, and some of the things that we don't really know why those things necessarily happen, but we see them. So I think there's a lot of value in that. Then of course, any of our weaned calves that come from earlier in the season are heavier at sale time. So they're of added value. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a very practical approach that somebody could use. Um, and you know, and there's a lot of thought too, right? Like not every heifer should be a replacement heifer, right? So even if you had 50, you know, cookie cutter heifers from that first one, right? You've still got enough differences that like probably some of them still need to go to the feedlot. Probably some. Yep. And you know, if you're, if you get kind of lucky and have a good year and get great conception rates, you should have some high value replacement heifers that maybe you don't need all of them. Those animals being selected out of maternal bulls and hopefully the right breed composition ought to have high value as either opens at weaning or breed them and sell them as breads. They ought to have pretty good value. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's kind of like a win-win-win strategy that you just described there. So I like that. Okay. The other one I wanted to uh, hit on before we keep talking about anything else with crossbreeding is this concept of one size fits all, right? That and, and we're as guilty of this on the cow side as we are on the bull side, right? So I'm a feedlot nutritionist. And, you know, yet everybody is like, oh, I have this 1,250 pound cow. So granted, they're lying to themselves. That cow is it. Especially here, that cow's at least 1,300, 1,400 pounds. But let's say you actually do have a moderately sized cow. Um, how do we expect that that cow, no matter what we breed her to, is going to produce a steer who can handle 1,500 pounds of weight structurally and things like that? What are some of the things that we're starting to select for now that might help us be able to find that unicorn <laughs> that's able to take a moderate cow, but she produces a steer they can handle some of these big finishing weights that we ask of them? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I may come at it kind of a different angle. Um, you know, it's something, and the, this classic work came out of Iowa State back in the early 90s, maybe. It was the Melton paper that said reproduction is 10 times more important than growth, which is a five times more important than carcass, right? That sort of ratio of oh, it's the overall value. 
right? The idea being if the cow doesn't breed, nothing else matters, right? And that, and I think that the value-based marketing that came through the 90s and later has changed that. I don't think that those ratios are right anymore. But I still think, and actually that'd be a great project for somebody to take on and redo that. But, um, you know, this sort of maternal, uh, the reproductive and longevity, right? Reproduction and longevity. Because if you're selling cows that are open as four-year-olds or five-year-olds, we know, again, from the old data that that cow hasn't paid for herself, right? She doesn't pay for herself till what, five or six, somewhere in there. And so any cow that's pregnant, even if her calf maybe isn't the best feedlot animal and maybe doesn't have the best carcass, for that cow-calf producer, that cow is a lot more valuable than the cow that has a great calf that skips every year, every other year, right? And so... And I talked about this at BIF two years ago, is that this sort of dichotomy, because what the, the packer wants and what the feedlot wants is pretty different, right? They don't care if your cows are breeding. I mean, they probably do in, in a general sense, but they're getting paid on the carcass or the growth or the feed efficiency or all those other traits. But those, if you're selling calves at weenie, those things honestly don't matter to you as a commercial producer. And you, you, yes, there's some differential value at the sale barn. Maybe if you've got good reputation calves, yes, there's some of that. But if that cow doesn't breed, it does none of the, nothing else matters, right? And again, if she only lasts in the herd for three years or four years, it doesn't matter how good her first three calves are. She still costs you a lot of money. And so trying to to manage that dichotomy between having cows that are functional and you can start going west of here, it gets even more important, right? Where you've got very limited grass, you've got limited water, you've got tough environments. That cow has to produce. She just has to. And whether she produces the highest quality, best carcass calf on the planet versus one that's just okay, that probably honestly doesn't matter to that commercial producer. So how do we manage that? And crossbreeding is a way that you can do that. If we can somehow separate that heifer-generating enterprise from the terminal-generating enterprise, we, in theory, can make 1,200-pound cows. Again, that's probably a, a stretch, but we can make smaller cows. We can make efficient cows. We can make reproductive cows. But then if we cross them appropriately keeping birth weight unchecked, but cross them appropriately, then we can make a steer that can have a heavy mature weight, that can have a great, car- a pretty good to great carcass. You know, we can do that with crossbreeding, but we can't do that if we're expecting the heifer and the steer from the same exact breeding selection scheme to both be those things. That's why we've got 14, 1500 pound cows, right? Because we're selecting sort of on that growthy terminal piece and expecting the daughters to be maternal. And that just doesn't work. And in fairness to the producers, the breed associations in general it have not done as good a job on giving us tools for maternal traits because I've worked in that area. It's hard. It's really easy to measure growth. It's pretty easy to measure carcass quality. But measure cow efficiency, right? That, that's hard. The data is hard to collect. It's hard to analyze. It's just much more difficult. But it's more, I want to say more. It's important and we need to do it. Crossbreeding allows us to do that, but it, I'm not ever going to say it's going to be easy. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. So we definitely appreciate, I always tell people that I'm a feedlot nutritionist because it was the laziest nutrition route, right? Like it's like I make a TMR, I deliver it to the bunk and I say, yo, you should eat this because I have balanced this to be perfectly nutritious for you. Whereas, you know, the person who's got to work in forage nutrition or something is like, well, you know, I put them in this field, but they ate this and I wanted them to eat this. And I don't really know how much of that they ate because I can't measure their intake very well. And that's crazy talk, right? Who who does that? (laughs) Anyway, point being. What do you think are some of the things that we need to improve on in terms of our methods of data collection and think about these things to how we do improve cow efficiency, right? Because we're only going to get more external pressure to improve our beef, um, you know, environmental pressures and things like that. And our cow base is the place to start that, right? This is the beast that's alive for the longest of anything, right? Like my feedlot steer has a, you know, 14 month, 16 month kind of ticket on him, right? But a cow, you know, I've got cows out here are eight, nine, 10 years old. We hope they last that long. Right. 
Yeah. And so right, that's the holy grail. We, at this point, cannot directly measure intake. And there's even a more philosophical question. Let's say we could. Do we want a cow that voluntarily doesn't eat? No, definitely. Everybody listen to that. I think that's so important that this idea of selecting for the cow who just eats less, that's not the solution here. Right. And, and we don't have the data to know what the solution is because we cannot directly measure forage intake. I mean, we want the cow that maybe eats a little bit less, but maintains that production. Um, you know, and like you said, on the feedlot, it's easy. We measure rate of gain, we measure feed intake. Not that that's easy, but we can measure gain, measure feed intake, find the animal that optimally combines it. Check, we're done. But there's some data out of Australia um, from a while ago that suggests that that intake on a high grain ration in the feedlot and cow intake are not necessarily the same traits. And so we're not even know if we're dealing with the same genes that, you know, that are affecting both traits. And even if they are, like you said, we don't maybe want to select cows that don't want to eat. And so it's just a big black box of unknown. You know, some strategy, what we need is to be able to measure what they eat or have a proxy for what they might be able to eat. And there's some ways to do that. There's uh, not well, but, um, you know, so I, you would know more about this, but the sending the grad students out to collect the piles and you feed them the chromium and there is a way to estimate from the residue and the manure how much they're eating. That doesn't really work well, except in a research setting. Um, there is a new piece of equipment that uh, quite a few universities have. We have one, I don't know if Iowa State does, called a green feed. And so basically it's a piece of equipment that's a, a fume hood, really, and there's grain in it. So you you bait the cows to stick their heads in this fume hood and it captures their breath while they're snacking on their, their little treat. And you can use their carbon dioxide and oxygen exchange to estimate their metabolic rate. So again, we're not measuring what they're eating, but we're able to get a, an estimate of maybe what their energy burn, right? Their, their sort of native maintenance energy burn is. Um, but again, that's not something that we're going to be able to collect routinely on all the seed stock in the U.S. And not to go on another tangent, but, you know, genomics lets us maybe leverage some of that. If we can measure the right cows and the right bulls, meaning sort of the seed stock upper level of our pyramid, and then use genomics to be able to predict that out to their sons, daughters, other relatives in the pedigree, that helps us maybe get some more bang for our buck as far as collecting data on relatively few animals, but getting that benefit across more of the pedigree. So there's some interesting work in those areas. And, and I think that it, we're, that's going to increase and continue, like you mentioned, the pressure on things like sustainability and environmental footprint. Um, if we can even characterize what we're doing well and where we need to improve, I, I think there's a lot of growth we could see in those areas. Yeah, I think you hit on a lot of really good points there. Um, one of the things I totally agree with the f idea that the feedlot comparison to the cow comparison, one is likely a post-absorptive efficiency, like maybe less sodium potassium pump needs or something else really basic, right? That's basically drawing energy that it, we don't need it to be doing it. And on the cow side, especially in a fiber-based diet, forage-based diet, it could be a gut microbiome or something like that. And I've always thought that was super fascinating, right? Like thinking even about like the future with dairy beef and we maybe don't have a cow who necessarily got to spend a lot of time with her calf before that calf gets removed. It, you know, how much of that calf's rumen microbiome actually comes from that inoculation from mom is just enough of that coming from like vaginal stuff when he was born and coming out through there? Or is it actually things where she needs to lick him every day and then he's licking the post and everything else, right? Like establishing that. So yeah, black box in the room and right. It's our it's our biggest strength and biggest weakness. <laughs> right. And you alluded to it too. I mean, there's the whole behavioral component. Why do they eat that plant and not that plant? Oh, it's hot. They're going to go stand in the shade. They're not foraging. You know, th there's this whole animal behavior piece that we don't know much about. Yeah. And I mean, even going back to your comment about replacement heifers, you know, there's folks out West that will make sure that it's the cows with heifers outside that go to range if they have to choose what goes to range and what stays at the home place, because they want that next generation of females to learn how to forage, right? Because actually, I can't remember what the pr proportion is, but cows have a ton of taste buds on their tongue. 
and they are more for things to avoid than they are for things to eat. So there's all like bitterness sensors and things like that. So it makes total sense that the heifer's like, oh, 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 mom doesn't like that. I'm going to keep moving. Oh, we like this. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. And then she remembers that the next year. Well, and that circles us right back to the very most basic thing we teach in animal breeding about genetics and environment, because some of those studies of those cows out West, there's a genetic component to that, too, that like the hill climber cows and the bottom dweller yes. cows. And and it's not just mom taught them. They have found there's some genetics to that. So that that I don't know if it's foraging ability or foraging desire or or what it is, but but we can we can select for cows that are better foragers as well as then train them correctly, train them, allow them to train them correctly. And maybe it doesn't matter if it's all genetic or all environment as long as it's happening. As long as we figure it out. Yeah. So, um, okay, so we talked a little bit about the challenges with intake and you kind of alluded a little bit to methane there as well. Um, and then we kind of had chatted earlier about water efficiency. Uh, tell us a little bit more about what do you think are some of the traits traits of the future that producers might be interested in starting to think about how they collect data or how they might use those data in selection choices in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and one thing I had thought about while we were talking earlier, something as simple on the fertility side as whole herd reporting, which some breeds require, some don't. But one of the challenges I ran into in working in fertility data is that when a cow has a, a blank, does that mean she lost her calf, she didn't calve, she didn't breed, or you just didn't like the calf so you didn't report it, right? That's pretty important if we're trying to figure out which cows are fertile and which aren't. So, you know, again, one of our really most basic concepts of genetic evaluation is this idea of a contemporary group, is that everybody's got to have data. You can't just pick out the good ones and, and collect that data. That actually penalizes your good animals, by the way. You don't want to do that. But Whatever data you're collecting, we need it on the group, not just a few of the group. That doesn't help us. And so, you know, getting a handle on fertility, I think not that that's low hanging fruit, but it's lower than some of the other things that we're, we're talking about. So just keeping records on your cows. When you cull a cow, why? Did she not calve? Did she have a bad udder? Was she me? I mean, what? Why? That will help us to get a better handle on the fertility piece. And I think that piece would make a huge difference. Again, if you take your calving rate or your weaning rate from, I don't know, 90% to 92%, that's a huge economic and really sustainability story, right? We're getting more beef from less inputs just by improving fertility just a tick. So I think that's the place we probably want to start. Um, but from there... We are getting external pressure, right? We hear about things like sustainability and carbon footprint. And so I think beef has a great story to tell. But I also think we've got some places we can do better. But we have to know a baseline. Like right now, do we know how much methane our cows are producing? I don't think we know, really. I mean, we've got some kind of gross estimates. But um, getting a handle on the baseline and then understanding, okay, are there genetic differences? Can we select for these things? But the crux is going to be, can we pay for it? So um, I draw the analogy to I, I, one of my projects in grad school at Iowa State was doing um, a genetic evaluation of Warner Bratz or Shear Force, right? And it's heritable. Tenderness is heritable. We know that. But it never really went anywhere because there's no monetary incentive at the end of the chain. We know it's important, but nobody is paying for tender carcasses. So I would, if I was advising a commercial producer and they said, hey, I can select on tenderness, I'd say, honestly, that'd be great for the consumer, but you're not going to get a dollar for that. So you are better off selecting on something like growth or marbling or whatever, something that you're going to get actually get paid for. And I think we're sort of circling that same spot with these sustainability traits, whether it's intake or efficiency or methane or, or whatever. If the producer isn't able to get paid for his selection, his or her selection, it doesn't make sense for that producer to do that. Now, are carbon credits coming? I don't know. Maybe. Um, and, and we, if they do, we want to be ahead of that curve a little bit. But for right now, um, if you're a commercial producer, you need to select for the things that are going to make your 
production enterprise more profitable um, with an eye to the future that maybe we can select on something like intake or methane production or water intake or whatever to be more sustainable if you get paid for that. Um, the other point that I need to throw in there that my animal breeding friends would be think I'm very remiss for not throwing it is that we, no matter what happens, we never want to chase a single trait, right? And so can we come up with an index of some sort that would somehow incorporate these sustainability type traits with their appropriate economic values, which we don't know, but incorporate that appropriately so that we don't lose all the wonderful progress we've made over the years and all these other traits and, and sort of optimize that selection. And, and yeah, we can do it. We just need the data. Yeah. Isn't that the ultimate problem at the end of the day? It's like we can't manage the data if, or, you know, we can't manage what we don't know about. So, but it's so interesting too, right? Like, segmentation is such a challenge in terms of communication, what you did to one animal to the next. But then this idea that's like maybe the producer on the cow-calf side really wants to select for an animal that can make the most efficient use of forages, especially as we have persistent drought and things like that. But then the feedlot person would really like to have the animal who can grow the fastest with the least resources. And maybe that's selecting for digestibility for both of those individuals, right? Because it's a metric, right? It's one over the other. Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting time, right? And so I, I wanted to ask one question before we kind of wrap this up. Are you aware of any apps or any recommendations for apps or something like that that producers might have on their phone or something that could really facilitate data collection? Because I'm remembering like grandpa sitting with his notebook, right, like at the table, although ironically, I'm not sure they ever did anything with most of those data, right? But there are probably decades of which cow calved it, which day and who this, he had, he had AI'd for decades, right? Like, um, birth weights on everything, <laughs> but like, not sure we did much with those data. Right. And that that's a good point too. Data is not any good if it just sits there. Right. Um, and I, I'm not going to give any like company names or anything like that, but I would say if you have a breed association partner, that would be probably the best place to go. And if you're a commercial producer, most of the breed associations do have commercial, um, programs or work with commercial producers to collect data. And I'm I'm biased when I say that because if the breed associations have the data, they can use it for genetic evaluation and selection programs. And sometimes commercial data is the most valuable. You know, it's great to have these seed stock, but how do they perform in the real world? And so um, if possible, I would always say work with a breed association partner um, through whatever programs they have, and they all have lots of different programs. But um, that's going to help increase the likelihood that that data could actually actually be used in a sort of a, a genetic prediction and a genetic evaluation context to help make selection for that next generation. It's time for our famous three. We have a time and labor saving product for you. AgriSlats by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With AgriSlats, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids, reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. Well, Jenny, this has been a really fun discussion and kind of a herald back to uh, crossbreeding discussions and all things like that. Um, I want to wrap us up here with our final three questions. So uh, the first question is, what is your favorite beef resource? So I, um, the, the one I use the most is ebeef.org, which is a, a branch of e-extension, um, but specifically related to genetics and genomics in beef cattle. So ebeef, that's it, ebeef.org. Uh, and it actually links to the National Beef Cattle Evaluation Consortium, which is another good resource. So that'd be my favorite. Will you tell us a little bit more about like what producers might find or what listeners might find if they go to that source? Yeah, so it's similar to eExtension, um, the other parts of eExtension where there's fact sheets, there's um, videos, there's podcasts, all kinds of stuff. But the EB point is specifically related to beef cattle genetics. And so there'd be things about how do you use commercial DNA tests for heifer selection and what are some crossbreeding programs? So just a plethora of of things available, anything reading and genetics related to be. Gotcha. We should have talked about DNA testing. That would have been a oh, fun one too. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on. Okay. 
Okay. Uh, next question. Um, what is uh, something that you're reading right now that's not beef related? So uh, most of what I read is stuff with my kids. Um, so my daughter is uh, like, she's 12 and she's started into the Black Stallion books. Remember those from America? I love the Black Stallion. Oh, I'm reading the Black Stallion. So it's fun to go back and read the kids books again because it's, you know, been 20 or 30 years and it, it's fun to reconnect. And you have a daughter and a son. Is that right? How old's your son? He's 10. Okay. Gotcha. So as we record in January of 23, um, yeah, I mean, I know that you had noted that you were like, oh, I don't have time to read anything but kids books, but that's awesome, right? Like I grew up with um, a mom who was like, let's go to the public library. Oh, we're out of this public library. Let's go to the next town's bigger public library, right? Like that's what we did every Saturday, which in hindsight is probably because probably didn't have a lot of money to do a lot of other things. And she recognized it was a super cheap way to entertain me for forever. But I would have like 10 books each week or two weeks whenever our like loan period was up. And that was massive, right? Like that built my reading habit and gave me an appreciation for so many things. And then when I would hang out at my grandparents' house during the summer doing cattle stuff, I would like raid the like Hardy Boy um, stash that my uncle had and like the Nancy Drew stuff and everything. So I've, I've never lacked for entertainment because there's always been a book around. Yep. And my son is very much so talking about January 23. Um, it's a good time to be a Big 12 basketball fan. So yeah, we're really into K-State and Iowa State right now. It, it's pretty exciting. There you go. There you go. Do you guys go to games? Yeah, not all of them, but we go to as many as we can. It's, it's fun here, but it's not Hilton Magic. There's something. Oh, crazy. yeah. There's oh, nothing man. like Hilton Magic. <laughs> Okay, so final question. What is a trait of someone that you admire that you think has helped them be successful? Yeah, that's a good question. And there's lots and lots of answers. But um, I, you know, I work with a lot of people across campus. And some people just have a knack for being able to listen and understand different viewpoints and understand where other people are coming from and come to a consensus. And it seems simple, but that's so powerful when you've got and it can be something so stupid as, I don't know, how the registrar wants this process to work on a transcript or whatever. You know, it doesn't have to be anything that's all that important. But when you've got people, well, this is how it has to be. You know, this is how it has to be. And this is why. But to be able to say, okay, understand those points. And how about maybe let's think about this. I mean, and kind of in a cool and calm way. I really admire the people that I, that I work with that can do that. Um, and maybe it seems like a simple thing, but I, I think that it, it does move us forward and help solve problems. And, and that's my job is to solve problems. Nice. Nice. Are you familiar with the Clifton Strengths? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you just described harmony. That is literally the harmony strength, right? The ability to bring consensus because they have this desire to make an efficient team and get stuff done, right? So yeah, definitely. We love the harmony, the harmony strengths among us. All right. Well, this has been a really great chat, Jenny. We really appreciate your time today. And uh, we're definitely going to have to have you back so we can talk more about DNA tests and things like that, because that would be really fun. 